0: four scripture readings this morning, and we have some readers for those. The first comes from Isaiah chapter 43, and Isaiah is writing, remembering the Exodus, and expecting God to act again, even as Babylon encroaches upon um, the promised land and God's people. Psalm 126, as uh, one of the Psalms of Ascent, Philippians 3, Paul Sets aside his his own works and trusts fully in Christ, looking to the future that he might share in the resurrection. And then in the Gospel of John we have the story, you know, last week on Wednesday, we washed one another's feet. And in this story, we have a woman who comes and pours ointment and anoints the feet of Jesus with a perfume. It was very expensive, and then wipes his feet with her hair. But this story is sort of caught between to Lazarus, and that's important. Uh, so, I invite you listen carefully, and listen well. This, too, is the word of the Lord. From Isaiah chapter
1: 43, 16 through 21. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snucked out like a wick. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water streams in the wasteland, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Psalm 126, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, Will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him.
2: Philippians three fourteen through fourteen. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisees, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, falseness. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which for Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is beyond and straining toward what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward.
0: In Jesus Christ. John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound, And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, "Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial." Poor, you always have me; you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we took a few words from Alexander Schmemann. We borrowed a little phrase, a one-line sentence. It kind of sums up Lent. Lent is a journey whose purpose is to transfer us from one spiritual state to the next. Remember that line? Lent is a journey whose purpose is to transfer us from one spiritual state to the next, and that sort of was a one-line summary of what we've sort of been doing to contextualizing this season in this approach to Easter. Lent is patterned after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness after his baptism and before he began his public ministry. It's a time when he fasted and prayed and struggled with temptation directed to him by the devil. And so we too enter into this time as a season in which we can seek to offer ourselves to God. Uh, we can seek to take up the cross and follow Christ. We can remove uh, maybe food or other things that we might tend to lean upon rather than leaning upon And so uh, we have thought about this as a journey, yes, into the wilderness, yes, and we will see, like Jesus did, a few stages. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, so there is a call involved. There's an initial struggle that we engage in as we move out into that direction, um, but there's also progress involved, and ultimately there is a vision of God. And Lent itself is kind of a microcosm of our entire Christian life which begins with this call to trust in Jesus uh, and this process of sanctification by which we seek to, you know, set aside the, the sin which clings so closely and live in and through the Lord. Uh, eventually, this results in our being taken up that we might see God face to face. So here's the pattern. Um, this is the fifth Sunday in Lent. And in some ways, it's kind of the end of most of it, because next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We'll have kids waiting palm branches, and we'll be processing in. We'll be remembering Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem as they sang, uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll sing that as we come to the table in just a bit. But we also remember, even in the midst of that celebration, that next Palm Sunday begins the, the Passion Week. The week of Christ's suffering for us it culminates in his crucifixion, death, and burial. And it alerts us that the week after that is Easter. It is the celebration of the resurrection. So in many ways, what we've been doing for Lent is sort of coming a little bit to an end because the next two Sundays have very particular, uh, a very particular focus, each of them. Uh, and so I want us to try to kind of bring some of this together in a way that could give us that next step, hopefully enabling us to take that, that next step from one spiritual state to the next. And so with that in mind, uh, let us go to the Lord's Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks that you have uh, walked this path before us. You have walked this valley of the shadow of death. Um, and you promised that we will never go anywhere without your presence with us we thank you that as we journey through Lent, it is you who shows us the way, it is you who transfers us from one spiritual state to the next, it is you who takes our fledgling efforts um, and and pitiful attempts and makes something good of them. And so as we come this day to meditate upon your word, as we dare to approach your table reminded of your grace and of your love and of the share that we have in your life, we pray that you would do what only you can do that you would take each of us who come from so many different places, some with hope and some with fear, uh, some with great joy and some with great suffering, take us from all the places that we are um, to the place that you would have us to be. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, hoping in you. Amen. Um, it's still kind of surreal to, to say this, but you know, when I was in Israel last year, <laughs> That's a nice sentence to be able to say. We landed in Tel Aviv. Uh, We were picked up at the airport. by Bote, piled into the van, made our way to the hotel. We unloaded our bags. We waited for permission and to go ahead to go out into the, the country. We got it, and so we went, the first evening we were there, to the southern steps of the temple in Jerusalem. And we saw there, Stones from the time uh, of Herod the Great, these massive stones, one upon another, rising up above you. We saw, actually, the pinnacle of the temple, which is the corner, one corner of it, uh, atop which was a platform uh, from where someone would announce that the Sabbath day was beginning, the evening of Friday. They would announce the Sabbath starting from that place. It's also the place, you know, we're talking about the 40 days of Jesus that he spent in the wilderness. When he was being tempted by Satan, the scriptures tell us that Satan took him to the pinnacle of the temple. We're just kind of looking at it like, and said to him, don't the scriptures say that the Lord will keep you from uh, striking even your foot against a stone? Throw yourself off from here, the angels surely will catch you if you're really the Messiah. We looked at that place, uh, and then um, we started drawing near to the steps. And at the very bottom, we saw these um, sort of pits, these stone pits, where people engaged in the, the ritual of, of a mikvah. It was a ceremonial bath or cleansing. That as people came from all over the country to the temple to celebrate the great feasts and to worship. They would come initially, and they would. it was kind of like a baptism, a ceremonial baptism in which they would be watched. And after that, they would begin to climb the steps. I've told you about these because they were all of irregular sizes. The steps were different lengths and depths. And remember, it wasn't poor craftsmanship. It was, what do you remember? It kept the kids from running up and down, didn't it? It kept people from rushing, from going too fast. They had to concentrate as they climbed. As they ascended to this place, after uh, consecrating themselves, after asking forgiveness, they began to approach. And as they did this, they would recite the Psalms of ascent. As they ascended, they would meditate upon the Word. Psalm 119 to Psalm 134 would be read in their entirety, would be prayed in their entirety. And at each step along the way, they would take the next one and the next one, and they would pray one of the Psalms. And then the next Psalm, and then the next Psalm as they drew near to where the feast would be had." I don't know if you've noticed it, but when we come into the church on a Sunday morning, we, we don't participate in a mikvah. We confess that there is one baptism, and that's Christ's baptism, and when we're baptized, we're baptized into His baptism and share in it and participate in it. And so we don't baptize or wash ourselves as we come in, but we do remember our baptism, we do re-consecrate ourselves every Sunday when we come to prepare confession. That's our way of doing that. And then, we meditate upon the Word. We rise a little higher, we climb a little further, seeking God's presence, and we spend time in the Scriptures and meditate upon God's Word. And then finally, it's time to come to the feast. So our worship worship of Israel, the worship that God directed us to practice it, this is what we do now, but now in a, in a greater fullness because it is um, in Christ that we do these things. And if you'll notice, we read, who read the psalm this morning? Chuck read the psalm this morning, 126. That lies pretty well between Psalm 119 and Psalm 134, doesn't it? This is one of the psalms that they would to they climbed the steps. And it does a great job of framing Lent for us. There are kind of two parts to the psalm. Um, it begins <clears throat> When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, Zion's like spiritual Jerusalem, we were like those who dream. Isn't that a great line just it's by itself? When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It was like it was, it was too, it's like it's too good to be true. It was almost not real. It almost felt like it was not real life because it was so good. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we are like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues lose shouts of joy and praise and acclamation. The nation said, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. It is such a beautiful passage. Can you see the context of this happening? The people come to the feast. They come to Jerusalem. They're climbing the steps. They're meditating upon the word. And they're remembering. And they're also recapitulating or reenacting or drawing into the present the fact that God has restored us. And we too are like those who dream. And as we come into God's presence, our mouths are filled with laughter, our, our tongues lose shouts of joy. We're, we're glad. The psalmist is remembering what God has done in the past. The Lord didn't restore design, and, and the psalmist is celebrating that. Remembrance and celebration together lay the ground for hope. It isn't just like, Maybe something good will work out, but is grounded in God's action in the past and faithfulness in the past. And the celebration of that in the present draws this new thing that God does into right here, into me, where I am right now in this present moment. It allows us to hope in the future because the second part of the psalm says what? The second part of the psalm says, restore us again. Restore us again, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves, bringing this harvest in with him. Restore us again, like streams of water in the Negev. If you were actually to go in Jerusalem, it's this—you know—lots of trees, and it's pretty green. Things growing, and and you go up, kind of just over the hill. its I mean, it's crazy. You go over the hill, and it's desert. Nothing growing. That's the Negev. There's nothing there. A lot of sand and rock and not much life. A few Bedouins leading goats or sheep around trying to find a bit of grass here and there. But he says, restore us like streams of water in the Negev. What's that about? Well, in the spring, there are these, there are these wadis. It's like dry riverbeds uh, or, or little caverns that come down. And in the springtime, when, or when the rains begin to come a little bit, these, these wadis gather water. The water runs down into them, and things begin to grow, and there's some life there. And then birds come and, and nest, and animals are drawn to these spaces. And this happens repeatedly. This happens habitually. It's always happened. Streams of water begin to flow in these bodies. These dry riverbeds become full. and So they also become full of life. It's happened every year, every year. Do Do us like that. Restore us again. Because we've seen it happen in the past, we remember it. And so now we're asking for that same kind of restoration to happen now in the present. This psalm and its two parts kind of gather up. Memory, celebration, and hope. Gather up all our scripture readings this morning. Isaiah is actually writing when he's worried about Babylon, right, which comes and conquers the people. And so, what does Isaiah do? He remembers God's deliverance in the time of the Exodus. How Egypt was then, you know, enslaving the people, but God set them free, and he remembers that. And he celebrates that and gives thanks for it, and that is what enables him to now hope that God will act. Again, restore us again, O Lord, just like that. Psalm 126, actually, was written remembering that God did deliver them from Babylon. So what Isaiah hoped for, the psalmist now remembers as an action that actually occurred. And he celebrates. He remembers God delivered us from Babylon, and he celebrates it as he climbs the steps to the temple to feast with the Lord. And he hopes that God will do yet again what He's done in the past. Um, the passage from John is incredible, which we could spend more time with it. Uh, you know, there's this there's this bit of an awkward story in the middle. I mean, do you, you remember Wednesday? I mean, some of you weren't real comfortable. You know, that's all right. We washed each other's feet. We walked through the paint, and uh, as a sign of our sin, we walked across a cross that that Chip had had laid out in the center of the floor, and we got it all covered up with paint, and the paint started out in these other colors, and it got darker and darker as you went, and then you came to the other side of the cross, leaving your sin up on the cross, and we washed each other's feet. Yeah, I mean, A couple people said to me actually while I was washing their feet, uh, "Thank goodness I got a pedicure last week." (laughs) I mean, so some of you guys are used to people touching your feet, but that's not something I usually do, and maybe not something many of the rest of us do. And so it was a little different, yes, a little awkward, maybe a little uncomfortable. So can you imagine (laughs) these folks are sitting around having dinner with Jesus, and suddenly Mary comes. Not with paint, it's like easy wash, but with perfume made from pure nard, unbelievably expensive, and pours it upon Jesus' feet and then begins to wipe it away with her hair. Do you have casual conversation while that's happening? Probably not. It's a moment that catches you off guard, and yet the framing of the story is, is everything. At the beginning of it. Do you, do you remember where this took place? Where was this? In Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Whose home was Lazarus. Lazarus. It was in the home of Lazarus. And John, as he's writing, just kind of slips in the fact whom Jesus raised from the dead. That was like a big, you know, something to pay attention to there. I hope you didn't skip it. Uh, This was the home of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, who was at the table with him. So this woman comes and worships and celebrates Christ's presence among them, not as some guy who who one day might do something. She is remembering in that very home. This is Mary, Lazarus' sister. What he has done, raised her brother from the dead, she worships him. She remembers, celebrates And this is what gives her hope, and the rest of them hope, as they look ahead. Because when Jesus said to Judas, who was complaining about how expensive this perfume was, don't say anything to her. Let let her keep the rest of this perfume, so that she can use it when? At my burial. I will always be with you. In the same way, and so it's right that she should praise him, worship him, love him in this way. But what can give you hope about a burial, uh, except the one that's going to be buried—the one who conquered death already and gave us a sign and the reality of the fact that he's greater than death? Right? Memory, celebration. Hopeful expectation. Grounded in what is real and what God has done. Uh, Of course, this is what Paul does. In Philippians, he's enumerating all the wonderful things about himself, all the things he's done. Hebrew, the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. Pharisee, of Pharisees, he's trained by Maliel, one of the greatest teachers of the day. Um, As to zeal, he was persecuting Christians. All of that. All the, all the things that I would have listed as the greatest things about myself, I'm going to now count as, as rubbish. The word there is the word for people. So you have a phrase, it wasn't worth much, right? Uh, that we might use presently. He counts it as nothing for the sake of knowing Christ and his resurrection. You see, because Paul says everything that he had built up in himself isn't even comparable with what Jesus has done for him. He remembers it. That he went to the cross and suffered for him and died for him and was buried for him. That he rose again for him. All those things Paul did, couldn't conquer death. Couldn't even conquer sin. But Jesus has accomplished this. And he's risen. And he's appeared to Paul, striking him blind on the road to Damascus, being so bright. They are questioning him. And then setting him free again from that same blindness by a man who prayed for him, to which Jesus had directed him. All of these things that Jesus has done, Paul celebrates and recognizes that he now participates in, that he shares in that with Christ. And because of this, he can also hope. That was how he ended the passage, that he would come to share in the resurrection himself. He looks to the past. He celebrates what Christ has done and is doing. And because of that, can hopefully look to the future resurrection together. Um, I hope that can begin to, to, to frame in for you. In fact, here's my challenge, invitation, homework assignment, if you will. In the week ahead, I want you to take some time to make a list of the ways that God has acted in your life. What God has done for you. And I want you to remember that, and I want you to also give thanks for that, to celebrate that, and to worship God because of all of that goodness. And I think that you'll begin to experience an emerging hope that arises within you as we continue to make our way towards Easter. That's the homework assignment, but I cheated, and for the last week, I just was thinking, like, And I can continue on far beyond this, but I wrote down just a few things that has has been happening in some of your lives. And that's the good part about my job is that I get to hear all that and to celebrate with you um, and to hope alongside you. So there was, uh, this past week, there's a situation where there's some folks that ran out of money. Just ran out. Lord provided, and some more showed up, and they needed I remember on Wednesday, as we engaged in this activity, uh, Lois, if we were reflecting together, uh, Lois, double teary, and um, she was remembering what Christ had done for her. She, she said, "It makes me so grateful that Jesus has forgiven me of my sin, and that He's been at work in my life." I remember uh, even this morning, you know, we, we've gotten a chance to celebrate expectant parents around here, and so we give thanks for that, and we celebrate it, and we look forward in hope. Uh, maybe son Paul's with us this morning, we prayed for him not, not too awfully long ago, a few months ago, some health struggles and challenges, and uh, and he's been able to come, and he have been able to be here for months, and he's here with his mom this week, and so we give thanks for what God's done in Paul's life, but you know what, guess what happened this week? his car broke down. Right? Which isn't particularly great, except for the fact that it did while Paul was here. And Paul is a great cook, and he shares, so that's something God's done in my life this week. He shared with us, and as he was leaving, he was telling us about this. He's like, you know, that's not an accident. Not all the times your car could have broken down, but he was here to have attended to, to figure out what the plan would be, and we're thankful for that. God's been at work. Um, uh, you know, I was... I've been watching my parents' house acquire mass uh, through the given week, you know, a few more walls up or that sort of thing. And, uh, and so I had a chance to talk with someone this week over supper who was saying, who was talking about growing up, uh, their children growing up just across the path from their grandparents' house. And what a gift that was, huge gift. And so we're seeing that happen. And we anticipate and hope that taking place in our own lives. Um, you know, Judy saw Judy Marshall this week. She's got pancreatic cancer, um, and she's been spending a lot of time looking at God's faithfulness to her in the past and being thankful for that. And it's actually giving her hope as she moves into this battle that's going to start this week with some chemotherapy. Saw Lou Cooper. She also has some health things going on. She had a birthday, and we talked about her family. We talked about her life. We talked about things. Um, the ways that God has been at work in her and with her and through her. We have a session retreat today. We're going to remember how God's been faithful to us. And we're going to celebrate that. And it's also going to help build us up in hope as we move into this next year. Um, you know, what else? I opened it up this morning. We had some folks share. Uh, anybody bold enough to say, before you've done your homework this week, what well, something that has done in your life recently that you're grateful for? Sure, God's not doing anything. <laughs> Come on, give me something. <laughs> this is now a test. It's not homework. This is the test. Come on, what's God done in your life that you're thankful for this morning?
2: I think us
0: joining hands and praying after service on the way to Yeah, to see our church family hand in hand gathered around the cross, focused on what Christ has done, it gives us hope. Um, you know, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it was so good. We were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. And from our tongues were loose shouts of joy. The nation said about us, Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Let's remember, let's celebrate. Let's hope as we come here to the table of peace. And the Father and the Son.